Pop Culture Affidavit, Episode 60, The Cult. Welcome to episode 60 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. So last episode, I spent some time talking about comics. Specifically, I got into some old issues of World's Finest in anticipation of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. This time around, I'm staying with comics and with one half of the World's Finest team, and that's Batman. But I'm not going to be alone talking about Batman, because I have a guest with me. He is one half of the duo that produces Hey Kids Comics, and he is also the host of the Palace of Glittering Delights. Please welcome back Andy Leyland to the show. I just guaranteed myself some downloads with this. Thank you. (laughs) Have you you not just guaranteed that some people have gone, oh, God, him again? I have no idea. I never checked my stats. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Tom. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you for inviting me. It's always lovely to talk to you. Yeah. He says like we do it regularly. <laughs> yeah, I know. In, in person anyway, like well, in, in over Skype, yeah. we're Facebook a lot. Yes. Uh, which is why, which is why I feel bad that I, and I was, Paul, Paul Spataro had this point too, that like, um, we used to write emails in to each other's podcast all the time. But once we actually started podcasting and podcasting together, the email or, or being friends on Facebook, the emails all drop because we just comment toward each other. And I'm like, I really should type up an email. I have a draft one sitting for Gene Hendricks in my <laughs> it's been sitting there for days because yeah. I'll message him like, oh, I like this. I like that. And I'm like, no, I really should just so he could read it on the air. Because <laughs> it is nice to actually read and address points on the air as well. Mm-hmm. And also, you're not working in a vacuum then. I mean, yeah. the, fa- the Facebook response immediately is nice, yeah. but you you do tend to put a little bit more thought, thought into an email because, uh, you know, I did I did honestly mean to email about your show where uh, you actually made me strut to staying alive, <laughs> for which the entire people that were around, thank you, because there is no greater sight than me strutting down the street as, as John Travolta. Just it, it'll get stuck in my head every once in a while when I'm just walking down the street and I realize that like yeah I am kind of walking in tune to the rhythm of the song. <laughs> my wife says I, I, she used to be able to tell whenever I was listening to Oasis because I start walking like a mank. <laughs> I start doing that Mancunian swagger. Mad for it, yeah, all right, ah, kid. And she, she just came in. She said, "Were you just listening to Oasis?" And I went, "Yes, I was." How did you know this? So so staying alive caused the staying alive strut. So well done. Yeah, it's and and, uh, and the funny thing is, is that like that's my that that movie, and and I haven't seen that whole movie all the way through in uh, 
way too long. And uh, that movie is my impression of has always been my impression of what Brooklyn is, even though Brooklyn is completely different <laughs> now. But it it actually calls for its own episode, I think. But but uh, but yeah, that, oh, the yeah. movie is it's such a good movie. It is because you have this image in your head of it. You think it's going to be like Greece. Oh yeah, and Greece itself is a little bit racier than you remember it when you actually pay attention to the lyrics. Mm-hmm. But Saturday Night Fever is is not in any way a kids' film. Oh, it's really dark. Yeah, when you watch it for that first time as an adult, you're like, oh. It was like the first time I watched Psycho. It was one of yeah. those things where it's entered pop culture so so much that you're aware of it and you know pretty much all the beats of the story. But when you actually sit down and watch it, it's not what you think it's going to be. Yeah. And Saturday Night Fever is one of them. Well, the the Godfather is kind of the same way because, because you know that um, – you know all like the big lines and some of the bigger scenes, but – when they're all pieced together in that same sort of context, it, it within its own context, like you realize, well, this is a little bit different than I thought it would be. Um, and that movie goes a lot quicker than you would think it would be for given its running time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, so Saturday night. If you've not listened, if you've not watched Saturday Night Fever, check it out. Yeah, because uh, it is actually worth watching because it's a big surprise. Unlike Scarface, which I watched and just laughed all the way through. What a <laughs> terrible film. That movie's that movie's just it's it's uh. Awful. Oh, it's it's not good, but it's it's just fun to watch. Um, <laughs> oh, I couldn't believe so many people at MTV Cribs had that poster on the wall, and I'm watching it. I'm watching it with Andrew. We're just ripping the piss out of it, and we're going. Do you mm-hmm. think all those people on MTV Cribs take this movie seriously? I don't know. I, honestly, that, I never understood. Yeah, I, I never understood that either because it's it's Pacino, who I don't think is Cuban. <laughs> Playing and De Palma, De Palma has a few good movies. The one he did with John Travolta and Nancy Allen. Uh, Blowout. Blowout. That's a brilliant Blowout was film. really good. Uh, the Untouchables. Mm, yep. I will watch anytime. Um, I I still to this day, even though it's it's very seventies, will watch Carrie. Oh yeah, but the, it's very seventies is a ringing endorsement as far as I'm concerned. Oh yeah. So. Um, Oh yeah, it's not it's not a diss on De Palma. I think he's done quite a few interesting films, but that one, I think it just gets built up because everyone on MTV Cribs who thought they were the least bit street had a Scarface poster in their bedroom. So we watched it thinking it was going to be like The Godfather. It's going to be this gritty crime drama. It's going to be really interesting. And instead, we got cartoon Al Pacino. Yeah, it's and it's hard to be. I don't. I remember. I remember that era. That was that late '90s, early 2000s era, where a lot of hip hop and this is and this is me who never listens never really listened to a lot of the music anyway but the image was very reminiscent of hair metal from back in the late 80s where these people thought they were really just you know some of those people really thought they were like hardcore rock bands and you're like no you have so much hairspray in your hair and you're wearing <laughs> And you're just like you are. You're dolled up to the point where, like, and you're singing. You're singing stuff that is just nowhere near, like, what Judas Priest was singing. Like, you know, you're singing "Talk to Me Dirty." <laughs> you're just like, well, yeah, it was like that with the the hip hop thing. The minute I see yeah. you've got a Scarface poster on your wall, suddenly my ability to take you seriously has rapidly approached the middle. Yeah. <laughs> so. But, but we're not here to do anything. No, no, we're talking about Batman. 
<laughs> Sorry, I took you off a completely different road there. I do apologize. Ah. Welcome to the Two True Freaks Radio Network. Hey, you know, when you've negotiated the contract with DiManzo to get me on the show, I may as well make it worth your while. <laughs> yes. So, um, no, we're going to, we're talking about Batman. We are talking about um, the 1988 DC prestige format. Remember that? Remember when they used to call it that? Yeah. Uh, miniseries. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> This, well, they called it that so they could justify selling it at like, um, well, this was this was uh, three fifty US at the time, but but by the early nineties it was five bucks a pop. Um, but we're going to be talking about the cult, which you have done a lot of stuff about Batman from the eighties and early nineties because you did uh, you did a number of things, it, it, especially like Nightfall, Nights End, and all that. Mm. I had Taking Flight, and the bulk of the first part of it was Dick Grayson. So it was really all the way up until about Prodigal. Neither of us have covered this. Nope. Which is weird because yeah, it was... Yeah, it's a gross oversight on my part. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just... yeah. It's, it's one of those things when you, when you got it. Because lovely listener, Pete behind the curtain, these things normally take at least a year, as Gene Hendricks will attest. But you getting in touch with it to say, do you want to talk about the cult, has took a remarkably short amount of time. Because the advantage yeah. of us both being teachers is that we're off this week. Yeah, it's true. That's true. We had the time to record. Mm. And and us just syncing up schedules with time zones and stuff, it really, really worked out yeah. really well. Um, you know, the, the only reason, I think the major reason I didn't cover this was uh, on Taking Flight was that I don't think I had it at the time. Um, I would have covered it. Because I didn't read this um, until a few years ago. Because I would I would see individual issues of it here and there in bins, but they were always more than I wanted to pay for them. I could never find the full trade because the there is a trade, and it's one of those trades that um, I think it actually is. Um, it's now available on in stock trades. You can get it for ten ninety nine. But uh, for the most part, for years, the trade was one of those out-of-print trades that you you know, mm. you know had to track down. Well, two, two then... things about the trade. Sorry to interrupt. Two things about no, the trade before you go on. One, I was surprised and moderately shocked to see this in my daughter's high school library. Oh, wow. Just this year when I went to parents' <clears throat> evening. And there was a part of me that was like, should I tell them that that's not really suitable for kids? And then I thought, no, the high school kids. I was reading worse than this when I was in high school, so leave it. Oh, yeah. you know? uh, secondly, yeah, DC went to great efforts to bury this mm-hmm. for a considerable portion of the 90s because the main plot idea that Batman gets broken did not jibe with Nightfall. Yeah, I know. It's true. In fact, that's in a couple of my notes. There's there's elements of this that show up in later stories. Mm. Um, first time I ever saw it was there's a... It was essentially a, 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 I don't know if you call it a coffee table book or not, but there's a book called Tales of the Dark Knight, Batman's First 50 Years from, it was from about 1989. And I used to check this book out of the library all the time. And it's basically, um, it's basically the Les Daniels book before Les Daniels put that book out about mm. 10 years later. And this is the author of this is Mark Cotavaz. And, one of the coolest things about this was, and I'm flipping through the book, it's mostly in black and white, but in the middle of it, in, in each era, there are glossy pages, which are just full color reproductions of classic covers. And uh, 
and I and um, in the back of the '80s section, there's this. Uh, <clears throat> there's a couple of of Ed Hannigan covers. There is uh, the the Dark Knight Returns, you know, issue one, Batman four hundred, um, Batman Year One Part One, the uh, Detective Five Seventy Two, where he's um, with Sherlock Holmes, and issue number four of the cult, which, uh, which is the one where he's holding, uh, what looks like it. I think it's basically the, it's a gun. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks kind of like an Uzi, but that was my first exposure to, uh, you know, Batman, the cult. And I had always been kind of curious, but it was just, it was just not something that was easy to find. And when it was, when you wanted to find it, it was not wor- worth the price I would paid. And then I got the whole, all four issues. So I have the individual issues for about maybe five or six bucks total a couple of years ago when I found them in a, in a bin at a show. Mm. So I was, I was very lucky in that regard. So I've but yeah, you're, since it came out. Cool. But you're lucky. You're right. It's one of those things that they really did bury this mm. at a time when think Gotham by Gaslight is about a year later than this. Yeah, Gotham by Gaslight was 89. Nine. And this yeah, is 88, so is 88, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, and and prior to this, about a two years before, or a year or two before this was Dark Knight. And that was, I think Dark Knight was prestige format, as they used to call it, as yeah, well. Yeah, Dark, Dark Knight was the first <clears throat> of these kind of square bound bookshelf editions, wasn't it? Where each yeah. issue was a, a thick package forgive the phrase um and that led to dc doing that an awful lot and marvel trying to do it but never quite pulling it off in the same way yeah there was a there were a few marvel ones here and there i remember a couple of x-men ones that i either had or friends had but it never yeah, excalibur did a couple the first have... excalibur was the alan davis one that was a square bound prestige format thing i still have that i think i do as well somewhat yeah so um and that yeah and and um DC did the the only I'm trying to think of the only other ones from the mid '80s and this was um, mostly post crisis I believe um, I, I don't think they started introducing this fa- this um, this format until the mid '80s unless I'm mistaken I'm trying to think of what might have been in this format earlier but I think Frank Miller's Ronin was actually just a regular comic book I think you're right. Until then, then, it was a reissue of the graphic novel. I think uh, Dark, yeah. Dark Knight Returns was the first of this kind. This in the history of the DC Universe. Yeah. Which was also square bound um, in two issues. And then they introduce um, Elseworlds in a sense with Gotham by Gaslight. Although I think Elseworlds came as a result of Gotham by Gaslight being so well regarded. Yeah, Gotham by Gaslight retroactively became the first Elseworld. Yeah, yeah, because by at that point they were doing the occasional, they were still doing the occasional sort of original graphic novel that was sci-fi based. They did Cosmic Odyssey, mm. which Starlin also wrote right around the same time as this, and then um, they did, yeah, they did Gotham by Gaslight, and then I think, then they did Red Rain, and I want to say the first Batman Elseworlds with the actual Elseworlds label on it was Master of the Future. Oh yeah, I might be off by one. That sounds about right. No, but but yeah, but then they took off with that, and yeah, but you're right, DC, and I think it was maybe because DC had the Elseworlds concept. 
That... And Jeanette Kern was very big on trying to push comics out of what she thought was the ghetto, the newsstands, mm-hmm. and yeah. doing these prestige format editions that got reviewed in in uh, the New York, the New York papers, and got picked up as graphic novels. And then she was the big proponent of doing stuff like this. What's surprising about this is no word is suggested for mature readers on it. No. Um you're right and it really should have been to be honest with you and it's not like they didn't have that label already because i believe um uh green arrow at yeah. that point was Mike already green just, arrow was yeah, yeah. And, and, and i'm sure there was oh no i could be wrong i'm sure some of the legends of the dark knight was mentioned as being for mature readers possibly but, and but then, maybe that was later on when gothic got collected maybe i'm thinking of that rather than the actual comics yeah, it's possible. And then uh, I know that, like, I think by this time, Swamp Thing and yep. Hellblazer. It was Hell, has Hellblazer started by now? Hellbla- Hellblazer, yeah, 88. I think you're just at the start of Hellblazer. Yeah, and I think they were, I think that was Mature Readers yeah. from the start. And then um, Swamp Thing had already gotten that label as well. So, and we were, so you're on your way to the, 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 um, the pre-Vertigo Vertigo books uh were were starting to to take shape um you know and uh you know Jeanette Khan shouldn't get all the credit for that but I think you're right Jeanette Khan really and sometimes I wonder if she doesn't get enough credit in... I, I don't think she gets enough credit for wanting to make comics more of a respectable art form than they yeah. were I also think some of the decisions that she's made as with the cult here have led us to where we are with Batman versus Superman getting an R rating so that's true you know pros and cons i suppose yeah and uh, and granted dc's dc's inner company um kind of goings on all the way up until maybe dan didio took over never really got as much spotlight as marvel no DC had this habit of just kind of putting the books out and letting them speak for themselves. Marvel always had, they had Stan and then <laughs> Shooter. Um, and Tom DeFalco tried to follow that on and then Bob Harass yeah. decimated Marvel. Yeah, I mean, and then Marvel, and then D- and DC also had the more stable stable corporate um, identity because of, be- of being owned by Warner Brothers since the late 70s, whereas Marvel's financial struggles were well-documented in the 90s. But but as far as like somebody running the show and talking about what was going on behind the scenes... There was Dick you know, Giordano. Yeah. The Meanwhile who, Columns was pretty much it, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and the Meanwhile Column was such a a thinking man's... A like, thinking man's bullpen bulletin. Yeah, it really, really was. Because, That's an excellent way to put it. Yeah. And not that he took himself too seriously. Oh, no, but... by no means. But he's, he he was he was less hyperbole in mm-hmm. what he was saying. He would do his day-to-day runnings of the office and he would explain how he would do some inking on the train into yeah. the office at like 5.30 in the morning. And then the hyperbole and the plugging came from... And then Marv Wolfman came into my office and we discussed such and such a project that I can't actually talk about yet. And yeah. he, he was just much more lower key in what he was mentioning. And, and then, you know, Keith Giffen came in and we talked about what's coming up with the Legion. And it was... But it was, it was always wrapped up in this bow of just Dick Giordano talking about his day. And it actually got to the point where I preferred the Meanwhile columns, and I really wish someone would put them all together somewhere. 
Yeah, that would be really, really cool. Even if it's only an internet web page. Because some of them, not only were they very well written and very interesting, and like you say, one of our only look behind the scenes of what was going Mm -hmm. on at DC, as opposed to Marvel, which had lots of other avenues for stuff like that. But they're very much a snapshot of a company in, in flux, the, the, the very much DC in the early to mid 80s is very much a company that is taking the strides to becoming accepted in the way that comics are now accepted as just being another form of literature. And I do think an awful lot of that came from those early early to mid 80s books that Jeanette Kahn promoted under her leadership. You're right. She probably doesn't deserve yeah. all the credit on her own. But like with Paul Levitz and Dick Giordano and to a lesser extent, Wolfman and Len Wein and all of that stuff. But I think. That's why those meanwhile columns need to be preserved. They're a very interesting snapshot of the comics medium transferring from what it had been in the golden and silver and bronze age to becoming what it is now. And they're very important, I think, as historical documents for people interested in the comics medium. Yeah. And she had the right people in place right under her, like, you know, Giordano and Levitz, because when she finally decided to move on, she had people in place who... You know, she moved them up Hmm. and they had been there for so long that it wasn't this sort of, there was, the transition was not very, very rocky. And then they eventually, well, Giordano eventually passed away and then Levitz, he's still with DC, although he, you know, he does not, he's not in the position that he, uh, he was because it's, you know, Jeff Johns and Dan DiDio who Hmm. breathed some new life into some stuff and then in some ways oh god and and you know um you know con and and jordano levis give us crisis and they give us the burn superman and and miller's batman yeah Yeah. and 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 teen titans don't forget teen titans oh yeah Jeanette khan strong proponent of wolfman and perez's teen titans now it's very easy to look at the teen titans now and go it's a marvel book being published by dc what's wrong with that and the teen titans for a long time under Wolfman and Perez was outselling X-Men. Yeah, she got a lot of that talent from Marvel. Mm. You know, you look at the of the talent that was... Um, well, Jim Shooter and, taking over Marvel helped. In well, that cases. helped too. But, but at the same time, and, and, and we've heard conversations, people talk about this when um, they talk about how some of this early 80s stuff has been so hard to get treated, mm. was the deals that were made in terms of royalties, which was another thing that... Yeah, was Khan, Khan pretty revolutionary at the time. Yeah, so um, yeah, I, I give her a lot of credit. I give um, you know, and then, uh, but you're right. You come down to things like the cults, and you see where this more mature look at a character like Batman would work. Um, the the tone and the and the the overdoing it of of Batman on the screen is. A part of a partly a result of it, but you know, directly or indirectly, Legends of the Dark Knight was such a good series for such a long a while, time. yeah. And then it then it kind of kind of petered out, yeah. It fizzled out after towards a the while. end. Yeah, there are there are a number of really excellent story arcs in Legends of the Dark Knight that I think deserve higher praise, higher rating, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it, higher appreciation than they necessarily get. Not just Grant Morrison's Gothic 
which yeah. is the one that constantly gets reprinted. Um, yeah. But there's Venom's really good. Yeah. Prey's really good. Oh, Prey was so good. Uh, the Matt Wagner one, Faces was really good. Mm-hmm. Archie Goodwin and Marshall Rogers reunited for a story that was really, really good, but had to be finished by somebody else after Marshall Rogers, after um, Archie Goodwin passed away. That's a really good uh-huh. storyline. Anytime. Yeah. James DeMatteis wrote the Joker in that book. Going Sane is really good. There's a really brilliant Robin story called Grim. Have you ever read that one? No, I haven't. Uh, read that. By Trevor that Von Eden, I think. Really, really mm. good. So there's there's an entire run of of different. So yes, yeah, some don't work, but the yeah. very nature of an anthology book like that is sometimes you're going to hit the bullseye, sometimes you're going to miss. But even sometimes the ones that miss the bullseye are still entertaining in some way. The only time Legends of the Dark Knight really let me down was when it crossed over in the other books, which we were specifically promised it would never do. Yeah. And then by the time you get to No Man's Land, it's just another Batman book. Yeah, I mean, with with the, in the case of um, the first time I remember it crossed over was Destroyer. Yeah, the three-part Destroyer art, yeah. And then they had a crossover into Night's End, and I don't know if they did that on purpose or if that was because they needed to finish that story up because Zero Hour is coming. Night's End always felt rushed to me. Night's End is very um, rushed. Yeah, and I prefer I th- it to Nightfall. Night's the middle one. What's the middle one? Night's Quest. Quest. Thank you. Night's Quest goes on too long. Night End gets rushed. Yeah. So, um, but uh, but yeah, and and Batman, Batman, Green Arrow, a couple others of 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 heroes in the DC really do loan themselves very well. To a book like Legends of the Dark Knight or a book like The Cult, I think you can do stories like this with Superman, but you you have to have the right writer on it. Because mm. um, I think that I think that um, Superman is one of those characters where I think you really can take down um, a mature reader's path and not have to have it be dark but just more sophisticated than what's going on in the day to day, you know, and, but at the same time, there's, I don't think you have to have the right talent for it. Mm. And sometimes they don't pick the right talent for these things. No, you, I don't so, think you could put Superman in this story. No, 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 no. But you could have done a, I think they could have tried a legends of the man of steel or something on that extent of a Legend of the Dark Knight type of title with Superman, stuff that's out of continuity that are just good Superman stories. But I don't know how successful it would have been if they didn't, if they wouldn't have had the right talent to do it, because it seems that like, it just seems that like for comic book writers, Batman seems to be an easy character, easier character for them to write because any, anytime some sort of big name comic book, writer gets his hands on superman they take it in the same direction and it's just breaking that character down where they don't need to break that character down you know i think the thing with batman is he lends himself to so many different types of stories that's true and they want to come in write a six issue art to go to trade paperback and leave nowadays so it's very easy to come in and write a a batman as mystery story a batman as detective story batman as superhero batman as supernatural there is so you want to write batman as james bond feel free but if you want to write batman as sherlock holmes go for your life and he just lends himself to so many different styles within the genre that he's in which is still primarily heroic fiction but you can write non-superhero stories with batman 
and it still works just as well as if you do a pure superhero story with Batman. There's a reason that there are good Bob Haney Batman stories and good Grant Morrison Batman stories. And that's mm-hmm. because as a character, he lends himself to so many different interpretations, so many different kinds of stories within himself while still remaining true to who he is as a character. There's very few other people could survive Adam West and Christian Bale. <laughs> that's a very good point. <laughs> Uh, both of whom I thought were good in. The oh role. yeah, yeah, both of them are great in what they, the Batman that they were doing, but the character has transcended any of that at this point. More than any character in comics, including my beloved Spider-Man and Superman or what the X-Men, Batman is now Teflon. Batman will survive Batman versus Superman. He'll survive Ben Affleck just like he survived every other interpretation. And this isn't me saying survives as if it's a bad thing. I haven't seen Ben Affleck yet, so I don't know. But he will, and he will thrive, and he will continue. I think he's one of those evergreen characters at this point that can be anything and do anything, and the audience will accept it as long as he feels like Batman to them. That's true. That's a very, very good point. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to take a quick break plug a couple of shows and when i get back we're actually going to get all the way back on topic (laughs) we're going to talk about batman the cult stick around i'm captain benjamin sisko welcome to deep space nine red alert all crew members report to battle station red alert shields up what shields you're starfleet officers now start acting like it oh it's just garrett plain simple Dax, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. It's what's all to become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet, one of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to the prophets. Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. Bloody hell. Oh, I love a woman in uniform. Only on TwoTrueFreaks.com. So what I'm going to do is give a quick summary of the story, which will not be as detailed as you usually expect, but that's because my guest and I are really more interested in talking about the cult than hearing me ramble on, so here we go. Creative team throughout all four issues is Jim Starlin, writer, Bernie Wrightson, illustrator, Bill Ray, colorist, Todd Klein, letterer, and the editor was Denny O'Neill. The book sold for... $3.50 $3.50 at the time, which is pretty pricey for 1988. And the release dates were as follows. May 10th, 1988 for book one. June 7th for book two. July 5th for book three. And August 9th for book four. The store was first collected in trade in 1991. It's still available, or at least I found it on in stock traders for $10.99, which is a really good deal. I personally have all four of the issues, which I think pay, I paid about 5 or $6 total a year ago or two ago in Baltimore. The covers are really, really striking from Bernie Wrightson. You have, uh, book one has Batman uncovering a sewer grate. There, book two has uh, his hands tied up by a rope. Book three shows him about to punch uh, somebody in the face. And book four shows him holding what appears to be uh, a an Uzi of some sort. Those four books have four different titles. Book one is Ordeal, book two is Capture, book three is Escape, and book four is Combat. 
The premise is the following. An underground cult, and I literally mean underground because their base is in the sewers, has begun to influence people throughout Gotham City, specifically the homeless. The cult is led by a man named Deacon Joseph Blackfire, a man who has a messiah aspect about him and claims to be several centuries old. He has many of Gotham's homeless as well as the homeless from other cities in his thrall, and they have begun picking off various criminals throughout the city, often using very brutal methods. When we open on book one, Batman has gone down into the sewers to investigate the cult, and he winds up being captured and chained up. The members of the cult feed him just enough to keep him alive, and Batman is sure that the food he is being given is drugged. While doing this, Blackfire and his followers preach at him, telling him the origin of Blackfire and his ministry, which apparently dates to before the first landing of settlers in Gotham City in 1609. I have to say this is actually fairly accurate to real-life Gotham, as those who know New York City history remember it was the Dutch, who were the first European power to land in Manhattan in 1613, and they held the island until 1664. This is why there are so many Dutch names in the New York area to this day. Anyway, Blackfire apparently goes to pre-Dutch days. He, apparently he was a shaman, and he's always had mystical powers, and everyone believes this. Batman's trying not to, and as they're preaching at him, he thinks about how he was captured because he was careless. Meanwhile, Jason Todd, a.k.a. Robin, goes to see Commissioner Gordon because he's concerned. He hasn't seen Batman in a week. Gordon notes that people have been disappearing all over town for a while, and he suggests a connection. The press is interviewing people on the street who actually seem to like the job that Blackfire is doing because he's cleaning up the scum off the streets and making the city safer. Batman continues to be starved and even tortured, and eventually after being confronted by a prostitute whose eye had been taken out by her pimp, the pimp the cult captured and killed, he is injected with some sort of hallucinogen, and he sees some sort of huge statue of the deacon, a statue that talks to him and shows him the light. As book two opens, Batman is now going out with the rest of the deacon's people, although they seem to be doing most of the serious punishing and killing, and he's reluctant to participate, especially when it seems that some of them, especially one of the homeless men that they've called Ratface, are out to settle more personal scores. A cop tries to help the Dark Knight, but Batman is so out of it that he actually punches the cop and then wanders off into Gotham. He finds food where he can, and it seems to help clear his head a little bit, but he's still wandering around in a daze. Meanwhile, the press reports on Blackfire's group, noting that they are going to be under investigation, and Robin tells Gordon that he thinks Batman is a captive. Batman eventually finds Blackfire's inner sanctum, which is ostentatiously decorated, while Robin heads into the sewers and infiltrates the cult to find his mentor. Blackfire's followers brutally beat our hero, while others in the cult begin to amp up their actions, assassinating the mayor and the entire city council. In the sewers, Batman begins to fight back against the cult members, albeit weakly, and Robin makes his move, eventually getting him to safety, although the Dark Knight is chained up and completely under the influence of whatever drugs the Deacon has given him. In Book 3, things get worse. More assassinations occur, including an attempt on Commissioner Gordon's life, which puts him in the hospital, as well as the brutal on-air murder of a TV news station manager. The government steps in and declares martial law, enacting the National Guard, which does not go well because the Deacon has so many followers that they are picking off the soldiers using various guerrilla tactics. 
Robin is able to help his mentor shake off the Deacon's influence enough for them to fight their way out of the sewers and to surface, where Alfred picks them up and takes them out of the city. But it's not a victory, as Batman acknowledges that the Deacon broke him, some, something that someone has never done before. He orders Alfred to take them out of the city, as it now belongs to Deacon Blackfire. Gotham is lost. But they will get it back again, and that's what happens in the final book. Two weeks later, Batman and Robin have recouped, regrouped, and are training themselves to use tranquilizer guns because they are going to be undertaken an all-out assault on the city, which Deacon Blackfire still holds. The cult has gotten more vicious, staging public executions and letting dead bodies hang in the streets as a warning. They pay one more visit to Gordon in the hospital and then make a move on Gotham using a brand new version of the Batmobile, which is more of a combat vehicle with monster truck tires than the classic Batmobile. Thus begins a long fight through the city and to the city center against all of Deacon's followers. As they close in on the Deacon, Robin is grazed in the knee by a bullet and Batman leaves him behind with a tranquilizer gun for protection as he goes to face his foe alone. They square off in an arena and Batman eventually wins the fight, inflicting brutal amounts of pain on his opponent. Blackfire's second-in-command decides that the Batman can't win and goes to shoot him with an Uzi, but Robin takes him out with a tranquilizer dart. Blackfire orders all of his followers to destroy Batman, but seeing their once proud and strong leader broken, the followers turn on him instead and tear him apart. In the end, the main cult members who committed most of the murders are rounded up. The homeless who are not under arrest return to the streets or leave the city altogether, and Batman and Robin burn the totem that Blackfire used as part of his indoctrination ceremony. So um, that is that is the the plot of the cult. Let's talk about uh, what we thought of this, uh, Andy. I'll start with you. Uh, if you want to just start us off with general opinions, then we can just kind of go through each uh, things that we found in each uh, of the four books because we're both working off the individual issues here. I yep. believe, right? Yeah, yeah. I've got all the first printings. I, I loved it. I've I've not read this in years. And like you said in your introduction, it's a gross oversight that Michael and I never did this on Hey Kids Comics. I don't know why we never did. But it is, like like we were talking about earlier on, it kind of feels like the forgotten Batman story. Yeah. And there is so much in this that came from Dark Knight Returns. This takes from the Dark Knight Returns in a good way. It's yes. not slavish to Miller, but it does use that narrative technique of, of newspaper reporters on screen. And it does use mm-hmm. Batman talking in his head to explain and drive his emotions and drive the plot along. But so much of this would be used later on. No Man's Land is in this book. Oh, yeah, so is Nightfall. So Um, is Nightfall. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you made the comment about the, um, well, it's WGOT, but the Expositional News Network copyright Michael Bailey, because Miller used that uh, very effectively. But it's a great trope, in my opinion. When it's used well. When it's used well. Yeah, but it it makes total sense because especially even and in fact this um, that being used here doesn't even make it look dated because we still have this in our culture. If this was happening now, yeah, I mean this would be the the twenty four hour. This is the twenty four hour news cycle that we have with cable news, and so 
it was. If you think uh, about it, was... it, they would be all over this. Oh it yeah, nothing but talking heads experts being wiggled yeah. in to talk about how they would deal with the situation, and then they'd be getting interrupted while they go live to something's just happened. So this, it, it didn't feel like it in 1988. Book, other mm-hmm. than what Robin's wearing, which is his traditional Robin costume, this yeah. could be published today. Yeah, and that's J. And as I pointed out in the summary, that's Jason, by the way. Yeah, yeah, it's not Dick. And I think I'm trying to place this, and I want to say this. Now, this, as far as when this comes out, this comes out right before, um, like literally two months before Death and Family, the cult ends. Yeah, well, because, Jim, and my thinking was if Jim Sterling's writing it, it must come around the end of year one, around mm-hmm. before. Um, before Death in the Family, obviously. But the yeah. Jason in this book doesn't feel like post-crisis Jason. No. That's my only problem with it. It feels like pre-crisis Jason, but it could also be Dick, because they don't mm-hmm. mention his name at any point, do they? I actually want to say that... I'm really trying to... Remember. I only read it today. I'm trying. To, I'm sure that he's called Robin. I don't ever recall him being called Jason at any point. I want to say that he is, and I'm trying to remember where I saw it. So I'll, um, we'll just keep talking, and if I come across <laughs> it, we will. But I think this this might be placed if we're if we're if we're saying that the Killing Joke is in continuity, which it is and it isn't. You know, it, mm. at this point, I don't know if it was, but I would get I would probably put this after. The Killing Joke and before Death in the Family. If yeah. I'm trying to shoehorn it into some sense of continuity, but one of the cooler things is that, um, I don't know. I don't. I don't feel the need to put everything into a, a timeline. No, because this is never referenced in the Batman books. No, not um, at all. Actually, I don't recall it ever being referenced at all. And then Danny yeah. O'Neill actually, if I'm remembering correctly, in a Nightfall issue, when somebody brings this up, Nightfall. Um, being well, he's been broken before. He was broken in the cult. Danny O'Neill actively says, "No, the cult's not in continuity." Yeah. So this kind of becomes this almost becomes a precursor to um, Legends of the Dark Knight. Mm. I love how it begins. These are four. Are they forty-eight page books? Forty-eight pages. These, however many pages there are, they're quite. There's no page numbers. Yeah. Well, no, there wasn't in prestige <laughs> books, but it starts. The story's already begun. Yes. How many writers now have forgotten to do that? I know. Batman is already captured by Deacon Blackfire when the story opens. Yeah. And it's not like it's it's not like it's a an underused trope. I mean action shows on television do it all the time. Shit, Alias used to do it yeah. every other episode. Yeah, pre credit sequence and then after the credits, yeah. seventy two hours earlier. Two hours earlier, and you're just like, oh, <laughs> Um, but this does, does, this doesn't really do much in the way of flashback. No. Batman's caught by Deacon Blackfire, and then you're brought up to speed as to what has happened to him via dialogue and internal reflection, mm-hmm. and then some flashbacks here and there. But the story is underway straight away. It starts yeah. and then just keeps going. Yeah. By the way, he refers to him as Jason once. Right. It's it, it's in book four while they are practicing shooting the tranquilizer darts. Oh right. Why they do the, the so yeah, not when it, they're doing the Rocky montage. No. Oh right. Okay. So, well, we alter that one occurrence of Jason to Dick, and this could take place anywhere. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's one of the one of the cooler things. Um, 
the uh, in fact, when the one the one very very Jason Todd scene that is in there is when they're fighting their way out. Um, in I think it's book three, and he screams, "Let's party!" Mm-hmm. That's a very very Jason Todd, especially Chris. You know, just sort of um, you know, and it, it it's a little bit Dick Grayson, but but it's it's very it's very just sort of impulsive, like you know, yeah, let's go kick some ass, sort of. Uh, Jason Todd Robin that was that was going on at the point, and I know that Starlin didn't have a lot of affection for that character, but arguably is, you need him in this story. Oh, you definitely need him in this story, and I've and I've seen Batman on film without Robin, th- and in situations thinking to myself, if Robin were there, he would not be in this situation. Hmm. I mean, I suppose they could have used Nightwing. In this, not in the films. But I think it being Robin emphasised exactly why Robin is useful and needed to all those mm-hmm. people who are very, well, what does he need a Robin for? Here. Yeah. He needs a Robin here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I chalk up not using Nightwing to whatever internal politics. I don't know what the relationship between Denny O'Neill and Marv Wolfman was, but Marv Wolfman always came across to me as very protective of Nightwing mm. because – Anytime Nightwing, there are very few times where Nightwing pops up in a Batman book without Marv Wolfman writing the book up until about the Nightfall era, mm-hmm. which is when afterward where where he becomes more, where Denny O'Neill basically gets the character yeah, and Wolfman unloads him from the Titans because the Titans wasn't, you know, it had been selling and then it wasn't selling. There's basically, you know, the powers to be at DC are like, well, you know what? We're giving Nightwing back to Batman, but you know, Nightwing's in year three and a lonely place of dying, but that's because Wolfman's writing both of those, and he never really shows up. In he's in like one issue of Starlin's Batman run, which is a great issue, mm. four four sixteen. Other than that, he's never really in um, in the thing. And I think at this point, if again, if we're going with continuity, it's probably during the time where they're off in space or something like that. But. Yeah. Um, well, I li- one of the things I liked about this was it, it kind of pisses all over the shared world concept. It doesn't even have to bother addressing, well, where's Superman while this is going on? Do you know why Superman's not in this? It's not a Superman story. Exactly. It's like in the Marvel Universe movies now, and everyone says, well, why doesn't Iron Man show up when Captain America's in problem? Because his name's not on the title of the film. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's, it's not a Superman story. It's a Batman story, and Batman yeah. will sort out his problem. Yeah, exactly. Um which, especially since Batman's a is such a street level villain, a villain hero, that he's taking care of villains that that Superman Superman doesn't need to fight Deacon Blackfire. How would Superman fight Deacon yeah. Blackfire? Yeah, exactly. And he doesn't. And Green Lantern does not need to take on. You know, like th- this is a very, very. Um, the only other person I, one of the only other few people in the DC out of the DC kind of pantheon of basic DC heroes that I can think of would be Ollie. Yeah. Who is very much a very Batman esque character at this point, anyway, with Mike Grell. Um. And that would have been that would have been an interesting thing to introduce to this, but but it wasn't needed anyway. No. One of the things so. I do I do like very much about issue one, in addition to them building up the story and Batman already being caught, they actually go out of the way to establish Deacon Blackfire and why the Gothamites would find what he's saying attractive. 
yeah. throughout the issue. And you're like, oh, well, I can see why people are going for this guy until you get to the very end. And you've got Don Perry, who is the artist. And all he really does is he's, he's not really he's bending the law rather than breaking it. Yeah. But under Deacon Blackfire's hardline rules, he gets beaten to death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a That's the, the turning point in the story where you're like, right, I cannot now wait for Batman to just bring this guy down. Yeah, because like you always suspected that there was something sinister about Blackfire, and then you're like, No, this is way much more and that they, they do a very good job at like the whole scene where he finally breaks Batman. Mm. And they show him with the little thumbtacky looking thing on his uh, ring where he, you know, drugging him. he drugs him and it's done. It's done in one panel and Batman and Batman knows he's being drugged. And yeah, it's like Batman knows exactly what's being done to him. Yet it's been done so well that he can't he his will to fight it or his or more his ability to fight it is stripped away as well as a well, Deacon Blackfire knows exactly what he's doing. They're doing that thing of starving him and then just give him enough food to keep him going. And he mm-hmm. actually notices when he's eating it, this food tastes funny. There's something in it. Don't curse yeah. hungry. And it's, you've got to the point where I liked this because it's not Batman as super God. Yeah. Under, under control circumstances and given a long enough period of time, he's still human and can be beaten. Mm-hmm. And Deacon Blackfire comes across as a very effective bad guy from that point of view that he manages to break Batman. And yeah. he's a great baddie as well because he is. There's there's a lot of televangelism to him, mm-hmm. and how he's managed to get the disenfranchised to follow him by beginning with he targets the homeless. That and that's a perfect. Um, it's in a sense it's very 1980s mm. because that was a big and it's still an issue it's, it's not like issue. homelessness went away but it was very much homelessness and crime especially in new york city still an issue in the 80s still an issue today and he tar- it, it and it's a great thing for starlin to do because what deacon blackfire is doing is he is um quote taking care of all the people who society has thrown away mm. and then when they're interviewing people on the street, mm-hmm. you're basically saying that, well, he's cleaning all the crap off the street. And it's it's really shrewd mm. on his part. And not only that, he's got he's basically targeting a bunch of people who have really nowhere else to turn, so they're very easy to persuade as well. Yeah, and the the scene where they go after Isidore is it Isidoru? Isidru? Which was um so. what's the name? Isidoru Dominga. Mm-hmm. That's who they go after. Who's a yeah, pimp. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's a actually pimp. he's actually talking there about Sally's late for this meeting. They're gonna carve her, gonna hurt her. So you're instantly not liking the uh, oh, that's a bad outfit guy. Yeah, <laughs> which is what he is. And they beat oh. him to death. But yeah. then Batman gets the other side of the story, and he sees what he's done to Sally. He's razor bladed her face. Yeah. Well, he sliced. He. I. It, I can't tell if he. It looks like he may have. St- sliced her eye out yeah it looks like she's only got one eye yeah and the first issue is doing a really good job of setting up why people would follow him so he's not just a straw man villain for batman to fight there's a mm-hmm. really good motivation for why certain segments of the population are following this guy and like mm-hmm. i say it's only when you get to don perry in the last couple of pages that you realize oh okay as with any hardliner 
there there's areas of gray that you're not taking into consideration yeah and he appropriately even through the entire series keeps the origin of this guy mm. kind of a mystery because now the um the story that one of his followers tells batman is the whole he was here before the dutch landed yeah in 1609 which is um which is appropriate to uh the dates are slightly off but it's appropriate to gotham as new york because the, the dutch settled new york before the english came in yeah and and basically took it out from under peter stuyvesant um <laughs> Growing we, up in we, New York. We were bastards. Well, well you know. Um, <laughs> but so, Stuyvesant was – the Dutch weren't exactly better either. They kind of, you know – No, well, the thing is you've got to own your history before, oh, you, yeah. before you can go forward. I'm not one of those people who says we should deny our history. You've got to own yeah. it. You've got to admit to, yeah, we did that. We weren't the nicest of people, but, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and they have this whole um, – this whole thing where he was a native American or something. And then cause he was a shaman and then ingratiated himself among, among these other people. And of course that's the myth mm. of Deacon Blackfire. But when Gordon pulls the files. Yeah. In issue two. They go, yeah. In issue two, they go back like a hundred years. So you're not sure what exactly is going on with this, with this person, but it's, it's believable enough that, you know, and and then and we don't. What we don't have at the end is a um, Wizard of Oz moment. You know, where Toto pulls back the curtain. He's like, Please "Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain." Mm. His who he was is still a bit of a of a mystery. Um, mm. All we needed to know is that he was effective at at. Um, you're right. Just you can see how people would be convinced that this person is doing some sort of good in the in the world. And, and, you know, he set up his front is like a homeless shelter and it, in the, what Starlin does really, really well is the sense of time over the course of the entire series. When, when Robin shows up to see, um, Gordon in the middle of issue one, I think he's, he tells Gordon that Batman has been missing for a week. Yeah. And, and he's, and he even says, you know, there have been times where he's been, um, he says he's disappeared for several days at a time in the past, working on a case, but never this long, not without hearing some word for him. So that's where he's, that's where, a, that's why it, he's able to be broken like this without anybody going after him because, well, he's you know he's gone, he's been gone before, but now I'm worried because it's almost like that, that, that amount of time that I have kind of mentally set has passed, and like all right, he's been gone for too long. And it's been a week. And then later on, through the Expositional News Network and, and all these other things, we get that this entire story takes place over um, a couple of months. Yeah, over quite a considerable length of time. Yeah, as opposed to just a few days or, or, or something. So the idea that Deacon Blackfire could build his reputation and build his little army and everything and, and do what he is able to do eventually makes total sense because Starlin's establishing a realistic timeline mm. for it all. Um, and this is why you need Robin because it's Robin who's like, yeah, he's not come home for a while. And then it's yeah. Robin who starts investigating what's going on. Yeah. Um, 
And it's interesting how if we, if we go into book two, Batman by then is has quote joined the cult, mm. or he's been accepted into the cult, and he he is among the cult members while they're doing these brutal killings. He's an accessory, though. Yeah. He doesn't actually participate very much. He tries to stop somebody as well, Mm -hmm. which shows that some of his real self is still in there. He tries to stop the guy who's going to shoot that guy through the head. Not that it ultimately makes any difference. Yeah. Because he ends up just knifing him. Mm Mm-hmm. And then he... uh... Then he he tries to grab some food at one point. <laughs> he's still he's still very much. Um, you're right. He's still fighting it, but he's so weak that you're right. He he needs Robin through this whole thing. And um, this is like you said. It, it could be very well that Starlin needed Robin in the story, and he just wanted just. His he has a tendency sometimes to write characters the way he just needs the character. Mm. Um, I think the mischaracterization of a couple of characters in Cosmic Odyssey is a really good example of that. Um, but uh, but with Robin, perhaps he wanted Dick Grayson in there, and then he or he you know he didn't want the current version of Jason Todd in there, and perhaps he was thinking like you know I'm just gonna have Robin. Serve. But this is a good this is a good Jason Todd. This is a good. Robin story in a way that's why I'm like why did I ever cover this um, yeah and it, it's a good Robin story in the sense that Robin isn't the main focus of it and mm-hmm. um, he doesn't even appear very much in the first two books No, but when he does start to appear he proves the reason that Batman needs a Robin he just yeah. needs somebody out watching his back because it would be hard to imagine this as a modern day story and not have Alfred play a more significant part oh, exactly Alfred's barely in there <laughs> It's Robin. No, I, it's Robin who rescues Batman, and Robin who brings him back. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and in the beginning of issue two, it, like just to talk about how Batman's under the influence, and the puns intended, mm. because he's so drugged that when they attack, um, when Ratface attacks, basically his neighbor. Yeah, I think it is um, just some why guy does he attack his neighbor? I can't remember because why. because he's going out with a white girl. Oh, yeah. So suddenly you've got this whole Deacon Blackfire's troop. And again, you don't really need it now, having seen the end of issue one. But you're seeing the corruption within. You're seeing people using a platform to promote a hated attitude. Yeah. And Batman, what's brilliant about this bit is the drugs that he's on prevent him from seeing this neighbor as he is, which is just like any other schlub. And then Batman sees him in pimp guard. An exaggerated pimp guard, yeah. a guard standing next to uh, a, a classic pink, like a pink Cadillac mm. type of type of car, and um, he even sees Ratface as a as a demon at one point, and he just until he finally punches him. Yeah, well, and initially he sees him as an angel with a halo and a, a fiery sword. Yeah. So that all yeah. of that is really subtly done through the artwork, which is Bernie Wrightson's brilliant art. Throughout mm-hmm. this yeah, I was. Entire entire series, and and also um, some credit goes to Bill Ray, who was the colorist, mm. because this is colored with a with the, there's the appropriate moodiness, and you could tell he could do more with the coloring, probably because of the formatting of the book, mm. as opposed to you know because there was a little bit more 
I don't know. I don't know how the color process worked in the late eighties, but I don't, with the regular newsprint versus, you know, this glossy paper, but, um, this would not have looked, whereas sometimes Baxter paper, the coloring on Baxter paper just didn't look good. Um, and sometimes some of this Baxter series, when they were reprinted in regular comics, actually look better in the regular comics just because of the way the, the paper kind of absorbs the color. This would have not looked good as a regular comic book. No. It, it, he's, it's vibrant where it needs to be, and it's moody, and there's, you know, there's shading of, of red and orange and, and, and things like that throughout that, uh, that make this just, just work. And Wrightson, um, when when we get into deep into book two and we are getting um, the next stage in his game, book two and then into book three of all of this these political assassinations, Wrightson provides gore and brutality in a way that completely works for the book and doesn't feel gratuitous. Yeah, and there is a lot of violence in it. Ooh, yeah, this is a, a very, very, very violent, violent book. book. My only issue with the story really is in part two. When when Batman takes out Ratface after he kills his neighbor, mm-hmm. the policeman shows up and he's going to kill the policeman as well, and Batman stops him. Batman essentially the, should have gone back to Wayne Manor. And instead, still broken and weary and tired, he returns to the sewers to get a lead on Deacon Blackfire. Whereas really, yeah. he should have gone away and recuperated here. And mm-hmm. you can write it up to he's not thinking straight. Yeah. But it was still the only real misstep in it. It was like, I'm surely at this point, he would have realized he needs, at very least, something to eat and a change of clothes. Let's see. He wanders through the park. Yeah, yeah and then he eventually does... Yeah, he it's it's almost a an arrogance on his part or, or something he says it's about it's about halfway home he says um you know he, he he broke you and by this time Robin's already in the sewers. Yeah, Robin's investigating what's going on because Ratface has spilled his guts to the police at this point. Yeah. Um he says I'd like to run home. If I do that I'll never come out of out again. And he he thinks that the only way to 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 win is to confront the deacon, not to regroup. And you're right; it's not until he's completely broken the deacon's control over him at the end of issue three, where he realizes we have to go. Home. Even then, he's like, it sounds like he gives up. Mm. So yeah, it's it's a slight. You're right; it is a slight misstep. But even then, but at the it same plays time, in. it plays into the story perfectly well. Yeah, it is just and, one of those moments where you're like, it's more a case of you shouldn't have made that decision. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah, easy yeah. for us as the reader to say you shouldn't have made that decision. It's not well, that the writer has failed. Yeah, especially with 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 Wrightson um, doing the artwork here on the page where he makes that decision. He's sitting in basically what's Central Park, um, mm. thinking, I have to go back to the sewers. I have to face the deacon. And the next four panels are him slowly turning literally into a knight. Yeah. So he's still he's, yeah, he's still very drugged, and and he's still having these hallucinations. So it 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 makes that decision a little more logical than well, why the heck did you do that? Other than because it has to advance the story. Mm. I mean, if he and, doesn't do this, he doesn't go back to the sewers, and, he, and Robin doesn't find him. Mm-hmm. Is the real reason. And like I say, it doesn't hurt the story in anywhere. You're not yeah, going. Yeah. Oh, that's an incredibly dumb move to the point where it takes you out of the story. You, you yeah. can understand why he's done it, even as you're thinking that's a bit silly. Yeah, and he, and then the deacon goes on basically 
implements like phase two mm. where he starts because prior to this, they were just taking out criminals and neighbors who annoyed them. And now he's assassinating leaders and he's still, you know, to Starlin's credit, he, there's no point where Deacon Blackfire is allied with anybody in the top echelons of Gotham society. No. Which is something that would happen in, say, the Nolan films where there were people who, you know, there were people on the Wayne Foundation board and all these people who were like, you know, were also the kind of slimy corporate people and what have you. He's still got the homeless people in his thrall, and and this is his personal army. And but he needs, he knows that he wants power, so he's going to take it by force. And he starts killing. He starts with the mayor and starts working his way down. Um, and it there there's we talked about how there's elements of nightfall in here, and there's elements of no man's land in here, and yet there are points where this feels slightly more satisfying. Mm. In a way, but I and I think it's because um, maybe it's because it's not as dragged out, or because I don't know. Like his breaking of Batman to me feels slightly more satisfying than the Bane wrestler move. Yeah, I, I think there's a there's see. I don't. I hate dissing on Jim Aparo because I love Jim Aparo, mm-hmm. but I think his stiff artwork didn't play into Nightfall as well as it could have done. I wish Norm Brayfogle had carried on drawing it because he started drawing it. Whereas in this, you've got a consistent look from Bernie Wrightson, and yeah. the story is doing everything that it should do to show you how he's been broken. And like you say, it's much more concentrated. Although it's taking place over a long period of time, it's only four books that you're reading. So. There's none of that. How do I put it? There's there's no there's no noise from any other continuity or any other comics. There's no yeah. feeling that he may have to make a stopgap to go and appear in the Outsiders or something, because mm-hmm. this is on its own. It works better than it did in Nightfall. Does that make yeah. sense? No, that's that's that makes total sense too. Yeah, and the No Man's Land part works well too. Um, and we'll get into that when we get into three and four because um, it's only for – and that takes place only over a couple of weeks where I think is the top period of time in No Man's Land was much longer. Mm. And the setup for No Man's Land being Cataclysm actually worked really, yeah. really well as well because it, it was totally – you needed something like that to set up why this city would just completely collapse in on itself, especially during a time – if we're thinking about um, just what was going on in the real world, it was during a time when you didn't have a recession going on. In fact, you know that was what the late '90s, early 2000s, and when No Man's Land took place, and that was, you know, people were making money hand over fist. So you wouldn't have had an economic. I mean, you you needed something to trigger an economic collapse in Gotham in the late 1990s Um, in the same way that um, in the Superman books in the early 90s after Lex Luthor died, Metropolis was hit hard Mm. economically because there was no, just because Luthor Corp, he was the support structure. Yeah. Yeah. He, he never, for as Machiavellian as he was, he never put into place. uh, It never seemed like there was a real contingency plan. Mm. And, Metropolis suffers, and that that reflects what was going on at the time because that was the early '90s, and in the United States, in the early '90s, the economy was in the toilet. So, but here, um, 
this reflects what was going on if, like I said, if you're using New York as a model, this reflects the, the very tail end of that era of New York um, in the late 1980s where it was improving quite a bit. Yeah. But there were still huge swaths of that city where you would not walk down a street at night um, unless you absolutely had to and you lived there because it was just, there was there was a, a huge problem with, with homeless drugs and and, uh, and and Starlin Starlin really did look at the world around him and said, "Look, I'm going to take from this." And then um, and to have Deacon Blackfire, who's like, "I need to do this. You know, I need to destroy the old structure, put my structure in place." And he and he literally goes for it. It's the end of book two as well, where Bernie Wrights mm-hmm. just earns his money as a horror. Artist, oh yeah, where Robin disappears, and you essentially get two pages of nothing but black panels mm-hmm. and just dialogue. And when he's describing the smell, you're instantly going, he's, a, he's in amongst the dead bodies, isn't he? Yeah. And then you get to the next page, which is just pile upon pile of dead body. Because as the mm-hmm. deacon, you know, he lives off the blood of yeah. the people. And Batman's just in the middle of it, just essentially rocking himself. Welcome yeah. to hell. Welcome to hell. He's yeah. well and truly gone by the yeah. end of book two. Yeah. That's a great it- ending. Yeah, and the thing right before that scene is where they pull all the files mm. in the in the police office, and it 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 just adds that layer, it keeps that layer of mysteries to who Deacon Blackfire is, and we never really find out. No, um, not in a way that um, because the the there's the comparative the character I can compare him to on some level is Brother Blood, but Wolfman went out of his way to explain Brother Blood. Mm. In that Brother Blood pretended he had been alive for eight hundred years, but basically what happened is that each son killed the father. Yeah. And and so there was one brother blood to the cult, but it was this it was a different person with each generation. And I you know, so that was what I, I kind of went to and he bathed in the blood of his victims and all this stuff. And that was what I went back to where I was like, is that what's happening here? Where where somebody you know, takes over, or is this person really immortal? Or and it's not necessary to to know. I it like just, that we don't find out. I do too. It's ambiguity in storytelling is another thing that comics seem to have forgotten recently, with mm-hmm. the need to explain everything. Oh yeah. And yeah. whereas whereas in this story, Jim Sterling, you know, Batman never actually finds out what is the real story of Deacon Blackfire, and mm-hmm. by that point, he's like, I don't really care. Yeah. I just want that he's gone. Yeah, we see we see in 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 book 3 where he finds the um the quote 50 foot tall statue. Yeah. And it's really not all that tall and he knew he had been drugged and we need to see that so that he can it's part of his deprogramming. Mm. He sees a little bit of the magician's tricks. He never takes the whole peek behind the curtain, but he see, he's able to deconstruct it a little bit to know that he can it, so that he can know that he can beat this person. And I think it's necessary at that point. But I don't think you're right. I don't think it's necessary for us, the reader, to know every little detail of who this person was and how he came to be. Because at the end of the day, he's um, he's somebody that Batman needs to beat because he's winning at this point. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like, do I ever really need to know who the Joker was? Not really. You know, I mean, I, aside from the Red Hood. No, you you don't need to know any of that. Everything yeah. we need to know about the Joker, we know from the Joker's actions. Mm-hmm. 
I th- I, I'm personally of the opinion that if you do tell his entire backstory, you're just going to undermine him as a villain. Because yeah. you know they'll want to make him sympathetic. Yeah. And and I, I've always liked the idea that um, there's one constant in the Jiroku's origin, which is the the Red Hood mm. and the, the Vata chemical, you know, that. But it's almost like the – maybe it was you who said it, that the Joker's origin is multiple choice. Yeah, he says that in the killing joke. Yeah, he says that. Yeah, yeah. So I, – and I like I like that concept for the character because it's just like – it's just – well, it's an, it's an insane concept and it's an insane character and it works for that character. Yeah. You don't need a, a definite answer because you'll never – It's one of the things get... that they got right in The Dark Knight, that every time mm-hmm. Heath Ledger told his backstory, it was different. yeah. And we get into book three here, and we start with a beheading. <laughs> yep. Oh my god! But it's again, Wrightson. Wrightson is a great artist. Um, for this, and I can see where Kelly Jones gets a lot of inspiration. Oh yeah, it's throughout Kelly Jones, this, he's Batman is very inspired by this. The ears alone. Yeah, and, although I like Wrightson's art better because Wrightson. Um, Wrightson's Wrightson, anatomy isn't as exaggerated. Yeah, Wrightson keeps us in the real world just enough for it to be really legitimately scary. Which is important in this story that takes mm-hmm. us quite clearly in, in a Gotham that is very clearly <coughs> New York. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's recognizable streets and recognizable people and recognizable violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and these people are coming out with... Yeah, they're not... He's not arming them in... That sort of superhero street gang thing. No, they've got axes and 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 what looks like a, a knives, um, boards, a spear that somebody has obviously made. Yep. A hook. Yeah. This is this is things that that are um, they're crude weapons. He's not he's not he's not running weapons. He doesn't have any lasers. He doesn't have any technology, and um, and they're also. They're also everyday looking homeless people. And I know that I, I'm trying not to sound offensive, but they're not Chris Claremont era X-Men street punk gang type, you know, like no, they're, this not, isn't, this they're is, not Hollywood homeless. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and it works and they attack the man, the, is the deputy mayor. Yeah, Cause they've already guns. killed the mother. Yeah, and they they behead this guy and toss his head down the street and and you know with apologies to Phil Jimenez, this is how you behead a character. <laughs> um, and then and Batman's seeing it as well, and and it's um. So yeah, is that is Batman seeing that? Because he says he's flip flopping out of reality. Is that just yeah. his his the drugs are still? He's now cold turkey at this point, isn't he? Yeah. So yeah. he's probably going through the hallucination stage and the sweats. Mm-hmm. So it's it's. I just got that that was a scene transition. Yeah. Because he's yeah. surrounded by all these dead bodies that have been hacked to bits. He mm-hmm. sees his head. It's a very good scene transition. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah. get that Batman actually saw what had happened. No, I think that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, he. And then he, and then we get we get the response to that meme that we've been seeing for years where Batman's smacking Robin. <laughs> I love Settle that. down. Yeah, oh, Robin just it. smacks him across the face. And the next panel, he kind of feels bad for it. Yeah, but then uh, it's because Batman doesn't say anything. Batman's like just shocked, and Robin's like, "You okay now?" And he's yes, 
still experiencing hallucinations, which is great. Yeah. It's a really good bit. That. Again, why he needs Robin. Yeah. And he, um, and I just, uh, the point, the point's being made just to go back to the beheading scene. The point that's being made really, really well is he even says that he says the Deacon's followers are legion. And we see throughout this whole issue how they are really taking advantage of their knowledge of the geography of the city mm. and the sheer number of people who have been working for him. Um, you know, uh, and we still have public opinion where we have people are like, well, they're getting what they deserve because people, as much as people hate criminals, they also hate politicians. Yeah, well, I think you're seeing that in numerous general elections around the world in the past couple of yeah. years. We're just tired of politicians. Yeah, yeah. And I think that also um, there's Starlin commenting on the idea of, like, you know, he's taking down the, quote, political machine. Mm-hmm. So and... so you can understand why people are getting behind him. Yeah. And then, you know, he gets more and more followers, and it's just... Um, we get one street. We get this sequence where we have them interviewing some of the people who were uh, who are coming to Gotham, and we have a, a very ragged-looking black guy, an old woman, a punk, a punk, and a guy in a Viking helmet. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing though. I originally thought that was D man. <laughs> Why is, he, why is he wandering around New York for? I don't know. Oh dear. I don't know. Yeah, and 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 just this, uh, and as and I like how, I mean, granted, th- the third part of any four part story is basically going to be set up for the ending, but sometimes the third parts are so you can ignore them so well because so much because you're just like you know it. it, it it feels like it's, they can spin their wheels a lot. This doesn't feel that way. You know, Deacon Blackfire is still doing these things where he, he almost kills Gordon. Yeah. And Batman, this entire issue is trying to get out of the sewers. Oh, Batman in this entire issue is going through withdrawal for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. So they allow, they allow Deacon Blackfire to keep winning, you know, to get, you know, the situation just gets worse. Which I felt was quite a believable aspect to this. Batman just doesn't turn around and go to kicking his ass. Yeah. He has to spend some time recovering. And mm-hmm. But while he's doing that, Blackfire is still going ahead with his plans. Yeah. So it is one of those things that the longer he waits, the harder his job's going to be for Batman to stop him. But at the same time, he's not in a position to go straight at him right now. He needs to yeah. regroup. He needs to think about what he's doing. And even in this issue, he actually doesn't think he can win. That's a remarkably yeah. different Batman to nowadays. Yeah, Alfred Alfred shows up in the limo. And they pile in the back and he says, it's all over. We've lost. Yeah. Alfred, get moving. And they, they leave the city. And, and you're not sure. I mean, granted, there's a part four to this, so you know that there's going to be a climactic conversation, confrontation, but you're not entirely sure whether or not he's going to come back. You know, this this isn't this isn't the last panel of this book is not him standing there all weaponed up, ready mm. like let's do this. It's it's a lot more bleak. Yeah, you you would think the last part of a four-part story, part three's cliffhanger would be, let's go and take back the city. And there's none of that. 
Yeah. It's a yeah, it's a really downbeat ending to part three. It's Batman yeah. basically they end up in a pub while they're waiting for Alfred to come and get them, and mm-hmm. the news is on as because as it would be twenty four hour rolling news at this point. Yeah, especially. And Batman just is fed up of hearing what's going on in Gotham, that people are falling for it. And he, he sells this. Jim Sterling sells this really well by having essentially nearly a page and a half of just TV news reports beforehand. Mm. Because we've had a nice little action scene before that where Robin nearly gets killed and Batman finally snaps out of it. And there's a there's an unintentional, well, it's not unintentional, a blackly comic moment in a, in a series that's had very little comedy. Batman yeah. smashes the TV. Robin comes back and says, right, Alfred's on his way. And he asks, what happened to the TV? And Batman just replies, situation comedy, lousy plot. <laughs> Genuinely funny line in an otherwise really <laughs> bleak issue. Yeah, which, I mean, you have, going way further back, um, you have... You see him. You see the deacon bathing in blood. Mm. Robin. Jason steps on a can. Yeah, that was a misstep. It uh, had to be Robin that made the mistake that yeah. gave away the position. I didn't. I yeah. didn't like that much. Yeah, but at the same time, it leads to a fight scene. That is, and Jason's got some magnificent thighs on him. <laughs> yeah, that and the scene where he kicks the guy, the bartender. Yep, it's like. Yeah, he's. Uh... I like where Robin kicks the underworld clearly in the balls. Yeah, love that bit because <laughs> that is one of those things in comics that you don't really see a lot until more recently. But if yeah. Robin squirrely plants his foot in that guy's nads, yeah, well, especially <laughs> since the guy, the guy's got him by the arms. Yeah, well, he and... is going to hack him to bits. Let's be yeah. honest. And then, and then, like Batman's not. What I just, I like the fact that that Robin being basically taken down because he's being you know because because batman's kind of like watching this happen mm. and he's being swarmed and then batman just turns around and just wails on these people and then you have that one page of um which i think was reproduced for the cover of the trade yeah and it's also reproduced right. at the very very end of this issue of him just standing there with this pinkish background and, and his eyes are slightly red and he's just and and, and robin just says wow like he just wait laid waste to everybody in this tunnel um it's a really really good moment because then because it it should be in any other any other story any other writer this would be the moment where he's like let's go get him and they go and the next panel is i'm still hazy you're right he's he's still working these things through his system because he was there for so long do you know what Um, this feels like this has only just come to me this feels like daredevil this feels like a netflix daredevil show Mm-hmm. That tone, yeah. I can just see that fight scene being done on Daredevil. Yeah. And them showing it, not in a, not in a, let's hear a bunch of punches in the dark and the lights go on and everybody's down. Mm. You know? Um, but yeah, I could definitely, definitely see that in a, in a, in a big, big way because it's, you know, it's it's incredibly violent. Yeah, but uh, it but is it a works. surprise this doesn't have a mature reader's label on it. Does mm-hmm. the trade? I probably I, I don't know I, yeah. I haven't I I would have had to actually look look that up. Right. Um. Because speaking of of mature readers, the I'm not a ballistics expert. I don't know if that much blood 
would get on the lens of a camera in a television studio. Oh yeah, when they shoot the, scene, the guy, yeah. Because the cameras in the studio are not that close to the anchors. You know, there there's at least a good five or you know, there's at least a good five to ten feet between them. As far as you know, so but then again, he is using an automatic weapon, so I don't know. Maybe there was that much blood, but talk about graphic, holy crap, yeah, graphic. That's Spartacus level of graphic. Yeah, but yeah, he <laughs> just walks up behind the guy, and puts an Uzi to the back of his head, and pulls the trigger. Yeah, and you're not really spurred any of it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, so for, exactly. for the time that this was written, this was. I do wonder if that partly that was a little bit of why they played it down. Maybe. It was too strong, even for the for even for then, even yeah. in a prestige format book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and then we have the whole thing with the with the with the army, the national guard, and the army coming in and them failing, um, which does sort of feed into the question of what is everybody else doing while this is happening in Gotham? I mean, yeah. there's no other superhero involved, but at least there's yeah, the well, army are well, involved. Yeah, like, and you would totally understand that they would get involved at that point. I mean, this is a crisis on a level that you know you're, you're talking about an entire city basically abandoning itself because of this this religious cult that's been taken up. And we go into to part four. Yeah, you do wonder how Gotham ever recovered from this. Yeah, <laughs> even more than No Man's Land. Yeah, where it's true. Legitimate, they made a pretty good stab at giving you a legitimate reason for everything that happened, and then people returning. This, yeah. this was just rampant lawlessness. You're like, why would people go back here? Yeah, I know. I know, and um, and you know the the brutality continues in Deacon Blackfire's part, but it really. Um, I'm just kind of flipping through, and you really you you see it in one panel. Um, up until they, the point where Batman and Robin actually re-enter Gotham, yeah. when they're doing their training, you see it on a panel on the on the Exposition News Network. And this anchor, by the way, is getting more and more haggard mm-hmm. as the series goes on. She's getting tired. She's like just getting more serious. And there's one panel of two bodies hanging from street lamps to suggest that. Yeah. So at some point, Gotham City has just been turned into a place where dead bodies are hung from street lamps in the main street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, why would you ever want to live there? <laughs> I don't care what R. Kelly says. This isn't the city of love. <laughs> no, it's it's more like a post-apocalyptic yeah. wasteland at this, this point. This is the walking dead version of Gotham. It is. It is. There, There is something very, very zombie, modern-day zombie piece about this, with the army coming in and failing, and, mm. and this... The wasteland that this place becomes. And there's something especially creepy about it being Christmas as well. So yeah. you've got all the Christmas decorations amidst these dead bodies just That's hanging true. from lampposts. That is true. That is true. I love um, I love issue four generally though, because issue four is the Rocky montage. Mm-hmm. Issue four is where Batman and Robin, Dick and Jason are training. The they go out of their way to say they've got drank tranquilizer guns. But, and Batman makes this quite clear in this comic, they may have to kill somebody. Yeah. And I, I like that he said, we will go out of our way not to, but if it comes to a choice between us and them, we we make that decision. That yeah. was quite, because it is, in a book this realistic and this violent, it is stretching credibility somewhat that Batman is going to take back the city without hurting anybody. Yeah. He's got missiles. Yep. 
I love that. Let's test the rocket on that dead tree. And yeah. Bruce is like, yeah, I always wanted to get rid of that eye, so just blow it up. I like I like it when they show the the real Bruce Wayne. Yeah. You know, the the the, the Batman Bruce Wayne with a little bit of a sense of humor, with a little bit of down to earth, you know, that 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 it's that there there's a there's a true person who's between the fake Playboy and the very, very grim Batman. And I think sometimes we we think of it, we think of those two characters as an either or, where there is a where there is a middle ground, um, you know. So kind of kind of in the way that there was a for a little bit there in the in the burn era of Superman, there was a super there was a version of Clark that existed on the Kent farm with his parents that felt, you know, didn't have to be as exaggerated as the as the newspaper clerk and, and wasn't putting on the airs of the hero of Superman. He's just kind of, you know, mm. there. And, and Batman's kind of doing that here where he and Jason are just, they're training. Yeah. But he's, but you know, yeah. Yeah. Cause like, he gives him a little thumbs up as well. We are ready mm-hmm. to take back the city. Exactly. And then you I, get that, that beautiful thing, your know, section of 10 panels, <laughs> which is, is would kind of be spoofed in Batman forever. Yeah, where both of them donning their uniforms, and then I love the hand clasp. Yeah, ready to boogie. We've one stop to make first. First, and I love that. And that you, you read an issue where he's going to go and see Jim Gordon, isn't he? Mm-hmm. And of course, that is exactly what he does. That was something that you know I'll give I'll give Miller credit for, and, and Miller and Mike W. Barr and, and the writers of the mid '80s credit for really strengthening the relationship between Jim Gordon and and Batman. Mm. I mean, it was there through the stuff that I've read from the '60s and '70s and stuff. But there's a, they really did something with it and made a real true friendship, especially when they showed how early their relationship began in Gordon's career. Yeah, and you know, and it's, it, uh, I love the Jim Gordon visit because it, it is, it's friendly but mm-hmm. still jokey. Yeah, it, like he opens his eyes and it's like, and it's, it's no hello, how are you? Any of that? It's just I've been expecting you. What kept you? <laughs> and and that, busy. Little, that little smile on Batman's yeah. face when he says that. Be kind of busy. It's a beautiful scene. Very little dialogue. Just, I'm taking Gotham back tonight. And Gordon just says, clean that bastard's clock for me, will you? You got it. And then, of course, I could have sworn I heard someone <laughs> talking in here. I, it's one of my fa- I've always loved that that trope. Yeah, the Batman just Batman. disappears. Yeah. And then we have... Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. <laughs> Batman, Gotham City, and it, it, you can hear the music swell. Yes, because this real, this really is Return of the Jedi now to Empire Strikes Back. All of the it the is. other three issues were bleak as hell, and then Batman rocks up in his monster truck. Yeah, <laughs> and starts just mowing people down, but with mm-hmm. tranquilizer bullets. Oh yeah, yeah, Punisher mercy bullets. Because he does, he does actually say we'll we'll avoid killing anyone if possible. Mm-hmm. So he's not, you know, completely oblivious to the fact that he may have to kill somebody. Yeah. But he says he says they're innocent victims of the Deacon's charismatic powers. Like you know, some of them are in some of them are in this way more than others. Yeah, and a lot of these people are just. They're just foot soldiers, really. Mm-hmm. And I do love that is is the way that he picks a random civilian to deliver his message. He looks yeah. fairly intelligent. Not that I need a rocket scientist for this job. He only has to remember six words. 
the Batman is coming for him. And I love no. Batman on that page with his goggles. Yeah. <laughs> well, not only that, you notice how he's on his knees begging. There's light around him. There's there. Wrightson's playing with the religious yeah. imagery here. Yeah. The Batman descends from the light. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love what he says to this guy. Quit sniveling. You're not going to die. <laughs> I love Batman as Clint Eastwood. I really yes. do. Did he fire? <laughs> do you feel lucky? Well, do you? Brilliant stuff. Yeah. Um, I could hear Kevin Conroy's voice through a lot of this, to yeah. be completely honest with you. And that's a good thing, too. Because Conroy always had the right amount of grit in his voice, but he didn't overdo it on the bail level of things. No. So... Yeah, and it's just—I mean, this is one big, you know, it's—it's it's really up until we finally get him down into the sewers. This is just one big assault on the city. Yeah, it's—it's it's, it's it's a, a really good action beat. Yeah, and it's—it's it's a just a set piece of just scene after scene and 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 fighting and and being this two man army. Um, it's the kind of big action set piece that superhero movies couldn't have done at this point but now Mm -hmm. we've seen the Avengers and we've seen the end of Man of Steel and this is what this closely resembles because one of the things that they do mention earlier on is the army don't just want to fly in and bomb the place because of all the property damage and you've got that brilliant bit where Batman says unlike the army I don't care about property damage (laughs) (laughs) and he's just blowing up buildings left and right to take out as many of the men who are in the windows as snipers as he can those guys probably died yeah yeah but I love that line. I'm not bothered about property damage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you could probably argue a case Bruce Wayne probably owns most of this property anyway. Yeah, it's true. And the Deacon takes this turn of, um, I'm going to be a martyr. Mm. He wants because that's to die. the yeah. It's I want to die. That's the next step in my in my evolution. I will become a symbol. Because he knows his power, and he he knows that he's going to take on Batman in an arena. Um, Robin gets shot in the leg, or grazed anyway. Uh, which so ba- basically that that it it helps twofold. One, it allows for um, Batman to go after him alone, and two, it allows for after the fight when the uh, when his when the, the Deacon's second in command is going to shoot Batman, Robin shows up and hits him with a um with a dart, taking hmm. him out. So it tranquilizer dart. Yeah, and it sets that up and it also sets it up, I mean, it you know, you can rag on Robin getting the whole Robin the Boy hostage bit all you want, but at the same time, one of them had to get hurt sooner or later. I mean, they're taking on a small army. Yeah, from a dramatic <laughs> level, we want Batman mm-hmm. to do this confrontation on his own. Yeah, that's what and of we course, need. And then he says, and then he goes, he goes to take out the guy who shot Robin, and his rifles jams, and he says, "This is another reason I hate using firearms. They're undependable." And he smacks, mm. smacks him with the butt of the gun. Oh, can we just go right. back for one second? Sure. In the middle of the big fight, this bit I found really affecting. When she sees the Batmobile, one woman races out of the alley. Because she thinks salvation has arrived. And she gets literally torn to pieces by Deacon Blackfire's men. And Batman can't do anything but watch. Mm -hmm. Because he knows that if he gets out of the Batmobile, 
he's going to get he, the same will happen to him and he's got to look yeah. at the bigger picture and there's mm-hmm. that that line in the last panel as he's watching this and his facial expressions just goes from horrified to angry mm-hmm. over the course of the four panels and then it's like it seems like it takes that woman a million years to die yeah and that's that's just a brilliant bit because that just solidifies how pissed off he is at this point mm-hmm. yeah the Batman has a lot of compassion for the for the the people he's he's fighting for without it having to be overwrought. Mm. And I, I did love I did love as well that he didn't need Robin to hold him back. He knows intellectually what he's got to do, but that mm-hmm. human side of him still just wanted to leap out the Batmobile and try and save her. But he knew if he did that, he loses. Mm-hmm. Excellent grasp of the big picture from uh, from the Batman, and just a great scene, just a really affecting moment. Yeah. All these people, all these deaths, everything that's happening, but seeing this one person die in front of him just really yeah. solidifies his resolve. Yeah. And that that goes into the scene where they enter Gotham Square, mm. where all the people are hanging up and, and, and all that, with all the labels on them and things. And, and this is just Blackfire's darkness has taken over. And cinematically, this scene would be quiet. Mm. Yeah, that sort of... Just you, maybe the, if it were an open, more open city, there would be you'd hear some wind blowing or something. But it's that's how you get the horror across. That you wouldn't score this at all. It'd just be this quiet scene, and then all of a sudden, that's when the swarm comes, and they have to fight their way through more of them, or at least they think. But this is where they they make their exit because that's when they go down into the sewers and they fight more people, and just which again there's so many people coming after them but deacon fire took the city over it makes so much sense there's so many people you don't do this with being just one person no he's he's got a lot of followers at this point yeah so starlin does a very very good job at showing the, the scope of everything it's not like you know one of those scenes where there just only seems to be a, a small number of people who are actually doing the work even though there's small there's a small inner circle of running it so to speak and in gassing everyone is a really mm-hmm. good scene there's something yeah. really i don't know cathartic maybe the best word of batman and robin just opening fire with machine guns <laughs> yeah and all they're doing is shooting out the lights we should make that clear they're not killing everybody but that is a really good scene because it was in a Chuck Dixon issue, wasn't it? Batman would understand and know how to use firearms perfectly. He just chooses not to. Yeah, yeah. He even and he even says that towards the beginning of the book, I think, when he's saying, "Well, he says it's." Jason says, "Strange to seems strange us having to use, us having to use guns." He says, "We won't be facing a handful of criminals tomorrow. I'll be an army." So that so he justifies his, mm. he justifies the saying we have to adjust accordingly. But it would make it always made total sense to me. That yeah, I don't really want to see Batman using a gun. No, I think it's cleverer that he doesn't. But but at the same time, it makes total sense that he'd be an expert marksman. Yeah, he would understand how that he would have to understand how they work oh, yeah. to fight them. He would yeah. have to be able to know what he can hide behind that that caliber of weapon can't penetrate. He would have to yeah. know all of that stuff. Exactly, and he's prepared quite a bit through this but it's not the this you're right this isn't the bat god of the late 90s early 2000s who had prepared for this three weeks earlier because mm. he actually does say that the first rule of battle if the odds are against you change them mm-hmm. so he's, he's yeah. prepared as much as he can in the amount of time that he's had but he wasn't yeah. uber prepared for everything that went down 
No, in fact, he he in in the flashback all the way in issue one where he's thinking about how he got captured, he basically says he made a stupid mistake and he didn't account for anybody else who might be there. Mm. You know, he completely underestimated what was going on with Deacon Blackfire, and that's how he got himself caught. So, which which is also important that when with the whole breaking of him and everything. In future versions of a story like this, he gets caught on purpose. Yeah, his way inside. You know, he's, um, you know, he he goes undercover or whatever it is. He makes them think he broke them or whatever it is. He actually gets captured. Like he loses at one point in this story, mm-hmm. which I, makes him more interesting as a character. Mm-hmm. Not that he never loses; it's that he loses and then picks himself up again. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the story, the, the fight scene, which starts off where, not that the drugs are in his system, but there's still the, you know, he still sees the demon that is the deacon. He still is, it's a little bit hazy and he it's almost like he's try, still trying to shake bits and pieces of this off. And he throws the gun aside and they go, they go hand to hand. Um in a very well choreographed scene. Mm. Um, it's not I, even like written up by panel borders, is it? No, it's, it's a, uh, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It is nine, technically nine panels, but there's no panel borders. It's just fight. Um, it's just him punching and beating the crap out of the, uh, out of the, out of the Deacon to the point where, where the Deacon finally is like, no, I can't take anymore. And Batman knows that he's not. He Batman always knows he's not going to kill this guy. But that doesn't that's stop him enjoying what he's doing. Oh yeah, exactly. He actually says that I enjoy breaking him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. I think that was I, again. I I think I had a problem with that only being one page. But again, what what was the alternative? Page after page after page of him wailing on this guy. Exactly. And it just it would have still had the same impact, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. And yeah. it, it's a, it's a beautifully structured page. Like you say, it's always nice to see the nine panel grid come back and then somebody do something different with it. Yeah. In that essentially, like you've just said, this is nine panels, but there's no grids, so one panel bleeds into the other, which gives the impression of the fight moves being a lot more fluid than if it was split up into grid panel. Yeah, it's really fluid, and and Wrightson's Batman is really tall. Mm. It's he's he's tall, he's light, and, and and he's and the the Deacon's very tall, so neither of them feel compact in in the way they're they're fighting. Which, yeah, uh, it's a it's a heavyweight boxing match. It, it very much is. Well, it's a one sided one. It's, it's oh just... yeah, very one sided because the Deacon he doesn't really put up a fight because he's too reliant on his bag of tricks. Yeah. So and then and then Robin Robin is the insurance policy, mm. and we have him. Well, he lets them tear this guy apart. Yeah, he doesn't stop them because his followers is... turn on him, having seen weakness. Yeah, and they essentially tear Deacon Blackfire to bits. Mm-hmm. And Batman's actually Robin's the one who said we should do something, and Batman says nothing we can do. It's all over. So this goes into the Mike W. Barr characterization of Batman, who will won't kill anyone, but if by their own actions they they are killed, he doesn't shed any tears over it. 
Mm-hmm. And then we end with, um, again, the 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 use of the really really good use of the television reporter, mm. um, just just giving us exposition or in this case, um, some falling action, some resolution, a little bit of of just what's going on, the bigger picture of things, and uh, him heading one more time into the sewers just burning up that statue yeah that uh, statue he thought was 10 foot tall and what actually yeah. what shorter than he is yeah it looks like or at least or, or at least around his height anyway and, and he just sets it on fire and the last thing is the the fire coming out of the sewer grate while a dad and holding groceries and his kid just kind of looking like what the heck is going on under there mm. I love and, this. I love this last page. I love that. Was he mad? Supernatural mystic, or just a con man who let his game get out of hand? Guess I'll never know. Mm-hmm. Love that. Yeah. And what's great? I mean, yeah, it got swept under the rug. In a sense, it became it became a pun not intended a cult thing of Batman stories. I mean it's it's it was not very I don't think it's still that very well known. I mean no, is my, it still I'm, in print? Um the trade is available on in stock trades. So right. you at least you can at least find the trade. Uh I don't think it's being regularly printed at this point, but they did do a new printing um uh, a few years ago. Mm. Probably right around the time Dark Knight Rises came out. Uh, because yeah, it has some similarities to Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, as well. yeah. So, um, and it, but yeah, it was. I mean, for for people who were fans of Batman in this era, and who were like you and me, who have you are from this era, know this comic because it was in some in some way or, or shape or form we were kind of contemporary to it. Like you bought it off the stands. I always knew about it and picked it up many years later because I'd always wanted to read it and I finally found all four issues for cheap. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a piece. And I think this helps it that it never, this prevented it from getting a sequel, you know, like some bad, let's go back to this. Well, one more time type of sequel where we bring up, I don't know, the son of Deacon Blackfire. Cause that rarely works. No. When they do something like that. So the fact that it kind of got brushed under the rug and became non-continuity probably did it a favour. Mm-hmm. Because nobody ever went back to mine it. And I've just had a look. It is on Comixology. Oh, it is. Okay. And not for very, very cool. expensive either. So if you want to... Oh, very cool. Very cool. Yeah. It and, it and it reminds me a little bit. It has some similarity to, but it's way more brutal and violent than God Loves, Man Kills. Yeah. Because there's because of the religious angle to that, and th- there's a whole that that particular X Men graphic novel, which I think did get a sequel at some point, um, which I never read, but I, I've read I have the original graphic novel has some com- some common themes to it, although that goes in a completely different direction because it's a completely different set of characters and a you know and a different idea, mm. but um, but it reminded me of that where you have that religious zealot taking over you know gaining much a lot of fame but in this case it's it's somebody who's a lot more um directly violent in his in his practices rather than the sort of squeaky clean sort of televangelist who you know who really is preaching hate but is is keeping it you know keeping that under control on 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 some level 
and is more media savvy. Black Blackfire is literally underground mm. and never never goes never goes mainstream, never becomes a pundit, never becomes a politician. He never becomes a Lex Luthor winning the presidency toward a villain. He is always the underground one and then he takes over he, by force. Like he takes over the media by force. He takes, you know, tapping into the television signal and he takes over the city and turns it into this just sick, sick place that he creates out of it. Yeah. And it's, I find it quite interesting that he himself doesn't become the hate figure. His followers, certainly Ratface was a, was a bigot and he has attracted a number of those people, but he himself never goes out, like you say, to appear on TV to, to promote himself. He does it all from behind the scenes, which is very differently to how they would portray it nowadays. Yeah. So, and, but he, he is a little unhinged at the end, or he is a little obsessed with, with his, his supposed path because he knows he, he wants his martyrdom and he, in his mind, he can convince Batman to kill him because he knows the minute Batman kills him, Batman will die. Mm. Because he has, he had, and that's why Bat and Batman is has his wits about him enough that he he knows he has to break him. He cannot, um, he cannot kill this man, and it has nothing to do with his code of killing. Although I'm sure it does, against killing, I mean, I'm sure it does on some level. But if you think about it, it makes it makes total sense for him to keep him alive and break him the way he does, because then Batman truly wins and the Deacon gets torn apart by his people, but that's a whole totally <laughs> different. Yeah. There is something about an ending. <laughs> so, uh, I don't want to kill anyone. There's nothing we can do for this guy, Robin. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> and if I'm going to explain it away, you know, if they had tried to stop him, it would have been a fight that, you know, he walked away from a fight he knew he was going to lose. <laughs> yeah. So, and, it, and like you say, it, it it closes the story off. Mm-hmm. We don't need a sequel to this. I mean, arguably, we don't need a sequel to anything. But no, no. But but our our our, our fandom has this way of of wanting more of something they don't need more of. Mm. Like the you race know. from the player on the other side. Yeah. I don't want a sequel to the player on the other side. It's a perfect Batman story. Exactly. I've never read the sequel. <laughs> Neither have I. I refuse to yeah. acknowledge that the sequel exists because yeah. nothing that I have been told about it leads me to believe it adds anything to the original mm-hmm. and just takes away from the original. So although a number of people have said, you love this one, they did a sequel. I'm like, don't care. Well, like, uh, Kingdom Come is a great example of that. Yeah. We're like, let's milk this this cow, uh, you know, and so we, we do, we get the kingdom, which has its moments but it's completely unnecessary. And Marvels. Yeah. Marvels didn't need a sequel. Marvels didn't need a sequel. Um, Kingdom, yeah, but but we got two sequels to Kingdom Come, neither of which were necessary. Neither of which were necessary. <laughs> and, and the great, great stories don't necessarily have sequels to them there, are, and, or the sequels are forgettable. Um. You know, some of those X-Men stories, there are sequels to a few of those. And In Days of Future Past, which they yeah. cannot let go. Uh, yeah, yeah, they, they, they overdo that. Um, you know, they, they kind of diluted the Dark Phoenix saga with 
bringing her back again and again and again. You turned um, into a dual song, though. <laughs> that, that's the note we're going to end on. <laughs> Tom Panneries becomes dual culture. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, and suddenly well, she did have a song. Conversation. She did have a song on the Batman and Robin soundtrack. She did, yes. That wasn't in the film. No, that was that was where that was the first time I ever saw music from end quote inspired by <laughs> oh, the movie on our record label, which is yeah, which is like we had the single version of a song from like two years earlier that we just wanted to put in an album. Oh, let's just throw it on here, and you're like, why is this here? <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, from the Godfather to Scarface and Jewel Kilcher. Via Batman the Cult. <laughs> That's what I love about pop culture affidavit. You never know what you're going to get. Exactly. Um, on that note, <laughs> why don't you tell... Uh, we are. We're going to end the show. <laughs> tell everybody where they can find you. Oh, we're ending on Jewel Kilcher, which I wouldn't mind at all. Um, hey, Kids Comics is intermittent now that Michael's off at uni but we've still got an episode out at least monthly and there are I don't know when this is going up but there are three more that we recorded over Easter that will be coming out real soon uh, that's on 2TrueFreaks.com Palace Glitter and Delights is on 2TrueFreaks.com which comes out whenever I can be bothered and it's a lovely companion piece to this and Gene Hendrix's show The Hammer Strikes I think the three of us do like various different pop culture stuff from completely different angles but if you listen to all three of them you get a nice rounded view of yeah. 70s, 80s and 90s pop culture comics, movies, books, TV shows all of that stuff uh, Listen it, to the Prophets is a Deep Space Nine podcast that I do with Paul Sfatero and Bill Robinson that is also on 2TrueFreaks.com because apparently I sold a contract I signed a contract to Demanzo ages ago and I'm now blood tied to them forever Yeah, because you know what his contracts are like and that goes through every episode of Deep Space Nine and with Stephen Lacey I do the fantastic cast which is now Patreon supported so you can check that out if you so desire that's every issue of the Fantastic Four and anything else we feel like covering along the way and we've fallen into a pattern with Palace and the Hammer Podcast and and Pop Culture Affidavit where where one of us does a music themed episode and then we're listening and we're like I should do one like within within a month the three of us have some sort of TV theme or something going on which have been um, they've been great fun I mean even oh, Michael Bailey got in on the act and speaking of, of Bailey uh, listeners if things work out the way they're supposed to he should be on my next episode I'm not going to tell you what we're going to um, we're going to be talking about but if everything works out it should be part of a two part crossover with views from the long box so come back in about a month and until then thanks for listening and take care Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit. All clips and media are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, so no infringement is intended. Feedback can be sent via email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. For more content, including show notes, media, and essays, be sure to check out the blog, which can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. 
You can support all the Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com whenever you shop. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.